0: Please pray with me once more. Oh Lord God, how we need you to come and to make this hour profitable and helpful and edifying and needful for us. So please come in these moments now Lord, would you be kind to open up your word to us, to seal it and to apply it to our hearts. And we're not asking just because we're so needy, because we so badly need your word. But we do pray that as it is applied to our lives, as we seek more and more to be conformed and shaped and fashioned after your word, that it would all be under the praise and glory of your son, the Lord Jesus. We're asking you for his glory, and it's in his name we pray, amen. In our culture today, especially this month, last week or so, it's not uncommon to uh, hear references in popular culture, uh, even among people who do not profess to be Christians or to even believe in God, to make references to Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus, of course, was an historical figure. That's not really seriously contested uh, by uh, just about anybody. Uh, Most everyone acknowledges that he indeed existed, and, uh, of course, it's only in the Christian church that he's acknowledged to be the Son of God. But nonetheless, in our culture today, maybe especially in the Western world, uh, where Christianity has been more um, influential, it's not uncommon to hear references in popular culture even Uh, To Jesus, and especially this time of the year, I sort of like to lean in every time. Maybe you're watching a show or something like that, or 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 whatever, and Jesus might be mentioned. And if you're like me, your ears kind of perk up. What are what are these people uh, uh, referencing Jesus here? Who maybe are Christians or not? What are they going to say about him? How is he going to be uh, represented? And uh, often, again, even among those who don't profess to be followers of Christ, when he's referenced in popular culture or in the news or in the media. There's certain things that are frequently or oftenly said about him, cited about him. There's certain things that frequently come up. He's often acknowledged to be a sort of uh, kind and meek, sometimes sentimental type figure, especially this time of the year. Maybe um, a popular and wise sort of teacher and preacher who had a lot of uh, good things to say. If Jesus' teachings are referenced, Uh, Normally, the focus is going to be on Jesus' love and on his goodwill toward men, maybe beneficial things he said about society and living in harmony in society. Uh, The scenes of Jesus that we might see in popular culture um, are perhaps scenes of him as a baby in the manger or scenes of him around the table with his disciples or with sinners or maybe Jesus performing one of his many famous miracles or something like that. That's, that's often the read I get on Jesus when He's referenced in popular culture. Now, of course, uh, this is a very one-sided view of Jesus, uh, but, but these are true things about Him, and our culture has uh, heard of or seen or detected true things about Jesus, and naturally those things I've just listed are things that people are naturally going to gravitate uh, to, things about Jesus that our culture finds uh, commendable but nonetheless, a very one-sided view. Because if you've been a Christian for some time, you know there's a lot more to Jesus than the simple things I've just mentioned. What is a little discouraging is that uh, if you put your ear to the wind or to the Internet and listen to sermons from other churches, from popular preachers, sometimes the portrayal of Jesus, at least this is my experience and my exposure is somewhat limited, uh, but sometimes the portrayal of Jesus is not much different Uh, than what you might hear of him on a TV program or a news program or even in a popular song or something like that. Uh, The Jesus that is preached today, of course, is the Jesus who is meek and mild. Uh, He's ever ready to be your friend. He is there to meet your uh, sense of felt needs and your need for uh, security and affirmation. He will never leave you, though you may walk away from him again and again. No matter what you do, uh, Jesus will always uh, smother you with his affection. He's ever willing to be near to you. And again, uh, most of that is all true, uh, but again, one sided. Um, lest we become a little self righteous, begin to look down at others. Let me just ask you, my Christian brother or sister sitting here this morning uh, what have your thoughts about Jesus been like lately? Uh, what are the last 10 things you have thought? about Jesus Christ. I wonder, just let this question sort of rest on your heart and evaluate it. If the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world built its doctrine of Christ based on your thoughts of, your prayers to, your worship of Jesus Christ, what would be the finished product? What would be our doctrine of Christ that we have for All the churches, if it was based on your thoughts about uh, the Lord Jesus. My fear is that for a lot of us, it would be of a Jesus who is very human and very much like us, and one who is ultimately moved and motivated by our felt needs. So we love to think of Jesus as a man, as a friend, as a helper, as a comforter, as a great promise keeper, as a shepherd, or as a savior. And listen to me, I don't want to see any of that go away. I want a complete Jesus who is a full 16 ounces to the pound. All of that is true of Jesus. But as I think about the church's doctrine of Christ, I sense that the greater deficit is in the realm of Jesus as omnipotent Lord and as mighty God and as sovereign judge overall. Those are not things I'm hearing as much in popular culture, sadly not as much in Christian churches, and if I'm honest, sadly lacking sometimes in my own heart as I think about the Lord Jesus. What we so desperately need today in the church generally, in our church in particular, is a more robust Christology. It's a big word for the doctrine of Christ, what we believe about Jesus Christ. We need more robust views of Jesus' power and authority and majesty as the very Son of God, which is what I love about John 5. We get a big Jesus in John 5, big enough to fill our hearts up with worship and adoration, a Jesus big enough to be my Lord and my God. A Jesus that corrects any false sentimental notions that a sappy Western culture wants to think up about him. Writ large over our text this morning in John 5 are these words, Jesus is God. And as God, he has the authority to do what only God can do. That theme, the divinity of the Lord Jesus, with some of its most penetrating and Relevant implications is what I'd like to open up for us this morning from our text in John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 29, uh, really 16 through 29, uh, but, but those verses together. Three main headings I have to open up the passage this morning, okay? Here they are. First of all, Jesus, as God, works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power. Jesus as God works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power. Secondly, Jesus as God has authority to give life. And thirdly, Jesus as God has authority to judge. So first of all, please consider with me, Jesus as God works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power. Now we read this text a moment ago, I'm not going to read it again in its entirety, Uh, But you'll notice the first 15 verses or so record this third sign of the Lord Jesus. He heals this man who was paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know if he was born that way. I mean, 38 years was a long time to live in those days, so maybe that was his whole life. Or maybe he somehow became paralyzed in some sort of accident. But uh, for nearly four decades, he's paralyzed, and Jesus, with a word, heals him. Because listen, the, the commands of Jesus. The voice of Jesus, the word of Jesus, always creates what it commands. And so if Jesus says, get up and walk, it's as good as done. So this man's healed in a marvelous way. We don't know if that led to this man's personal faith in Jesus Christ. We're not told. I'd love to believe that that's so. But it really is simply the backdrop to the larger issue in our text, which is this controversy over who Jesus is and what he believes this miracle performed on the Sabbath Says about him. So please read with me verses 16 through 20. Follow along as I read. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things, healing this man on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now, some of you may know this, but the the Jewish understanding of the Sabbath was that you were to uh, abstain from all work and to rest totally and entirely on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. That's commanded in the fourth commandment. Now, in other places in the gospel accounts, Jesus critiques the prevailing Jewish understanding and application of the fourth commandment and its intended meaning and purpose. But he does not do that here. He doesn't bother critiquing the Jewish view of the Sabbath. And so we're not going to make that the issue this morning. We're actually going to move right past that. We're, we're going to talk about Sabbath but not how it applies to us uh, necessarily. Notice in our text, Jesus does not criticize the Jews' assumption that men and women are not supposed to work on the Sabbath. In fact, I think he sort of implicitly endorses the idea, the notion, okay? But Jesus is in essence saying, yes, it, it would be wrong to work on the Sabbath, unless, of course, you're God who always works to uphold the universe, and I am the Son of God, so what's the problem? My Father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, God doesn't take a day off, so how could I? It's an arresting statement, spectacular statement, if true. In other words, Jesus claims for himself the Sabbath exemption which the Jews understood to be reserved only for God. And if he's claiming the Sabbath exemption, he is unequivocally making himself equal with God. And if he's making himself equal with God, that's blasphemy and we have to kill him. See, the Jews have no trouble understanding the logic of Jesus' words here. They get an A plus for their skills of deduction. They understand him perfectly. Okay? The issue is their failure to accept the truth of what Jesus is saying. But Jesus doesn't see any irony or anything inappropriate in his words at all. He just says, yeah, I'm just doing like my father. What's the big commotion about? My father constantly works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power. I'm doing that too. Can you imagine standing across from Jesus when he tells you this? Like, you're working right now, and right now, and right now, and right now. He's saying, I'm working right now. Your heart's beating, isn't it? Believe me, you don't want me to take a day off. This conversation's very, very relevant to you. Can you imagine what that would have been like? What we're told here is that Jesus works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power. My Father is working till now, and I am working, and Notice it's present tense. I am working right now, right now, and right now, which means the very muscles in the faces of these Pharisees, in the mouths of these Jewish critics, their very vocal cords, and their very brain signals, all of which they're using to attack Jesus, Jesus says, are only operating because I allow them to do so. Think about that. Every time you use your tongue to spread gossip, The only reason those words can even get out is because Jesus has given you the ability to speak and to make words. Every time you scheme to do something evil, those brain signals uh, that are, are working to allow you to plan something wrong, something bad, something evil, that activity is only made possible by Jesus upholding the universe by the word of his power. This ought to have arrested and shocked the Jews into humility and to worship and reverence. Jesus, of course, says later on in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to raise it up again. You think you're crucifying me? You think that I go blindly or unwillingly to the cross? That's all a part of my plan. You don't think I could call down a legion of angels to execute judgment on you and to bring me down from this cross? Of course I can. I'm working at all times to uphold the universe by my sovereign power. That's what Jesus is in effect saying. Jesus, as God, works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power. But listen, this isn't anything new. So, So don't think Jesus is saying, okay, my Father has been working until now. So all that stuff in the Old Testament, all that activity, that was all the Father, and now it's my turn, the Son. Now I'm working. That would be to completely misunderstand the words of Jesus. You see God doing things in the Old Testament by his sovereign power to keep the universe in motion. That is the work of Christ. I was going to go to a lot of passages, try to bear out this point. I'm just going to turn to one. Okay? It's in Isaiah chapter 40. You're welcome to turn there or to listen to me as I read. Isaiah 40 is unequivocally a passage about the Messiah, about Jesus who is to come. It's actually Isaiah 40 and verse 3 that John the Baptist quotes talking about Jesus in John 1. They say, John, who are you? He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. What's John the Baptist doing? He's preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And he says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Huge statement. This one who's coming, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to untie He is God and I'm preparing the way for him. That's verse three of Isaiah 40 and verse five says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So we know this is a passage about the Messiah, the coming Christ who Jesus claims to be. Now look what it says about him, beginning in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in abouts. Who's in all these things? Presumably the Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Look down at Verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing. You see a a world leader supplanted, that's the work of the sovereign Christ. And in this case, it's the pre incarnate Christ, back in Isaiah 40. He brings princes to nothing, verse 23, makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One, the Anointed One, the Christ. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing my friend listen to me the lord god of the old testament is the christ of the gospels the lord god of isaiah 40 who spreads out the earth who supplants rulers who gives strength to men and women the lord god of the old testament is the christ of the gospels the one we see working in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you've been tracking with this series, that should come as no surprise. What were the first verses we considered together? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And not anything that was made was made by anybody else but the Christ, the Word, the Son of God, who was God. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. And so Jesus says in John 5, verse 17, our text this morning, my Father is working until now, and I am working, and I have been working, and I will keep working. Where is the irony? I don't understand. Where's, where's the blasphemy? Where's the sacrilege? Of course, it would be blasphemy if he were a mere man. It would be the highest form of irreverence if he were a mere man. But if he's God, it's only right that he work on the Sabbath. And Jesus would not be guilty of blasphemy but those who are trying to kill him and denying him Godship. My friend, do you recognize that Jesus as God works always to uphold the universe by his sovereign power? Do you recognize that you take your next breath at the command of Christ? Do you realize that if he ceased working for a second, we'd all be dead? That if these Jews got their wish, their hearts would stop beating. In 1957, Ayn Rand published a novel called Atlas Shrugged. The name was based on a figure in Greek mythology named Atlas, who's some sort of, I guess, titan or god or something like that, who supposedly holds the earth and the heavens up on his shoulders. Maybe you've seen that image before of Atlas holding up the world. Lots of statues and figurines of him. So Ayn Rand, in her novel Atlas Shrugged, borrows the analogy of Atlas holding up the world and argues in her book That the world is upheld ultimately by successful, industrious, high capacity capitalists. And in the book, which amounts to one giant repudiation of socialism, remember this is the 1950s, Cold War against the communists. In the book, one of Rand's protagonists makes the suggestion that if people are going to continue to take advantage of the great capitalists of the world, then they as a group should withdraw from the world and simply let it collapse. In other words, Atlas should shrug. Those mighty industrialists who hold up the world, just shrug, let it go, and society will collapse into utter anarchy. It's a very intriguing book, very long book. If the great capitalists of the world go on strike tomorrow, I guarantee you the world won't fall apart. It would be bad for business, maybe the stock market would crash or something like that, but the world would keep spinning, okay? We'd all keep breathing. But if Jesus shrugged, if He went on strike, if He should stop working for a moment, it's over for us because He upholds the universe by His sovereign power. And thus, by simply healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus establishes that He is equal with God because as God, He is working and upholds the universe by the word of His power. So that's the first thing that's revealed about Christ in this text. Jesus as God works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power. Now, secondly, Jesus as God has authority to give life. Jesus as God has authority to give life. Please look with me, beginning in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing. Greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but He has passed from death Life. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is essentially saying in these verses that he, as the Son, can do whatever the Father does. Jesus says, if he can do it, I can do it. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says. He's saying, get your Trinitarian theology right. I am God, and whatever the Father can do, I as the Son can do. If you've seen me, the exact imprint of his nature, you have seen the Father. And so we should not think, like so many in our day, that the Father is sort of like in charge of big picture things and Jesus is like the HR department or he's in charge of kind of the day-to-day details or something like that. It's not like the Father is the one who is all transcendent and powerful and mighty and omnipotent and maybe a little bit scary and and distant and the Son is the one who is imminent and meek and mild and like a shepherd and our, our buddy, boy, friend kind of person. If you want to know what the Father is like, and who doesn't, look at the Son. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at the Son. I told you I'm going to say that a thousand times before this series is done. What is God like? How can I know Him? Look at Jesus Christ in the pages of this Gospel. If you're not a Christian, and you want to know what the Christian God is like, look at Jesus Christ in the pages of the Gospels. And you'll learn that the Lord Jesus comes as God's agent, as his ambassador, as his representative, as his exact image. And so whatever the father does, that the son does likewise, which means, and I think this is true, the Lord told Moses, take off your shoes for where you stand is holy ground. We need to do that in our hearts right now. I think we can say this, that sometimes the activity of the father and the son will appear indistinguishable. Because whatever the Father does, the Son may do likewise. I know each member of the Godhead has his own specific role and function. We believe three persons, one God. But at the same time, there can be a great deal of overlap. And I think I could prove the point with one question. Which member of the Godhead created the world? Of course the Father. Well, hold on. The Son was in the beginning with God. We're told in John 1, verse 2, he made the world. So it was the Son, right? We're told the Spirit moved over the waters. What is it? It's all three. Whatever the Father does, the Son may do. Likewise. But now I want to talk about this issue of life, and that is the main point here. Jesus has God, has authority to give life. There's two things I want us to observe here, okay? First of all, Jesus is the giver of life. He's the giver of life. Verse 21 says, For us the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. We all need life, right? Who are we going to get it from? Jesus says, You get it from me. You Jews, you need life. You won't get it from anyone but me. In this world full of death, there is one who gives life, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus, as God, has authority to give life to whomever he will. So he wants to give life to a lowly fisherman like Peter. He gives it to him. He wants to give life to a despised tax collector like Matthew. He gives it to him. He wants to give life to the woman at the well who's had five failed marriages and now living with her boyfriend. He can give it to her. The son gives life to whom he wills. Let that encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you pray for your lost friends. Jesus could give life to anybody. The sovereign Lord of the universe who upholds the world by the word of his power, he gives life to whom he wills. And let you take solace and comfort and cry out to a sovereign God who can give life to any. But the second thing I want us to observe here under this point of Jesus being the giver of life, and this is the more important point for our purposes, that is that Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the source of life. Verse 26 tells us, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In other words, you can't have life unless it's connected to Jesus. Now, I want to make a very important distinction here that I don't think we often appreciate. When we read that Jesus has life in himself and that he gives life to those who ask it of him, we should not conclude or or picture in our minds that Jesus is like giving life out like certificates. Here's life for you, here's life for you, here's life for you. Go your merry way and enjoy the life that I've given you. It is pictured as a gift here. He's giving life like a gift, but it's not the way we give gifts. Like if you came to my house this past week for Christmas, let's say, I gave you a gift. I gave you a pogo stick. Thank you for the pogo stick. I don't see a lot of kids out on pogo sticks these days. Great toy. Kids, ask your parents to get you a pogo stick. They're like six bucks at Walmart, okay? And you take that pogo stick. Well, listen, you can leave my house and never see me again. The gift is not connected to my person, to me. You take the gift and run with it and bounce on that pogo stick to your heart's content. And we may never talk again, but you got the gift. I've given it to you. It's left me and now it's in your possession and you're gone. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus doesn't give people life like presents or like certificates. When Jesus gives you life Jesus gives you himself because he is life and there is no life outside of him. He is as our text says, he has life in himself. So John 11, Jesus says to Martha, Martha, you don't understand me. I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, he says to Thomas, Thomas, you don't understand what I'm saying. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself in his person is life. He has life in himself. And when he gives you life, he gives you himself. This distinction I'm making trumps pretty much all illustrations you might try to make. Okay? So I'm going to try to make an analogy. It's just an analogy. It breaks down. Okay? If you visited the White House, there was a time when it wasn't so hard to visit the White House. Some of you old-timers might remember that. Okay? Maybe you've even been inside before. very hard to visit the White House nowadays. But if you visited the White House, you arrive there, and you are granted full access credentials, like you're given a lanyard with the presidential symbol on it, And they say, these credentials mean you go anywhere in the building. As long as you have that lanyard, you're fine. So you take those credentials and you go throughout the building and you can see whatever you want and roam around and all of that. That would be one thing. But of course, you can lose your credentials. You could, uh, I suppose your credentials could expire. Your credentials could be taken away from you. Someone might fail to acknowledge your credentials. Okay? But now imagine a different scenario. You arrive at the White House, and the president answers the door. And he takes you in as his peculiar friend. And you're walking around with the president. And someone asks you, hey, can I see your credentials? You're not necessarily supposed to be here. And the president says, it's okay, he's with me. Wherever I go, he can go. I'm the president. You don't need any other credentials than that. That's a little bit like what Jesus is talking about here. When you have life, you have him. He's not passing it out to you, and you've got to go on your merry way to do whatever you want to do with it. To have life is to have Christ. So think of the picture that Jesus is going to use later on in John 15, of Jesus as a vine and us as branches. The branches only have life if they're connected to Him, and if nutrients are organically flowing from the vine to the branches from Him to us. You realize none of us are immortal, right? And when we rise from the dead, we don't just become like immortal, like possess an independent quality or attribute of immortality. If we were severed from Christ for a second in eternity, life would be gone. We only have life insofar as we are connected to Christ. Now you say, okay, see the distinction, but who cares? My friend, this has huge implications for the Christian life. If you want to live in resurrection life now, you have to press in to Christ. Life is only found in connection with Him. If I'm going to grow, if I'm going to bear fruit, I have to be united to Christ. Not simply objectively, like I got saved, but experientially, I have to walk with Him, I have to abide in Him, I have to draw my energy, my strength, my nutrients from the vine. From the life, there is no life outside of Christ. The men are going to be considering in a couple of months that famous book by John Owen, The Mortification of Sin. How do you think you're going to have the strength to mortify your sin? To kill sin, to give a death blow to sin. You have to be connected and to draw your strength from the one who is life. You must be attached to Christ who has life in himself. And so this understanding of life means that becoming a Christian is so much more than signing a card or praying a prayer or making a decision and then going on your merry way. If that's your view of life and how you get it, you don't have it. You only have life insofar as you are connected to Christ, which is eternity long for the believer. Jesus, as God, has authority to give life, indeed is the source of life third and final point we've observed that Jesus as God works to uphold the universe by his sovereign power Jesus as God has authority to give life now thirdly and finally Jesus as God has authority to judge Jesus as God has authority to judge look with me please beginning in verse 22 for the father judges no one but is given on judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Now this is not a reference only to Believers because of what's said later on in verse 28 and 29. It's a reference to everyone. All who hear will rise, will live. Verse 26. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is one of the great and sober facts that the Bible teaches and that Christians believe. And that is that all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. Everyone is going to rise, Christian and non-Christian. Aristotle will rise from the dead. Julius Caesar will rise from the dead. Attila the Hun will rise from the dead. Leonardo da Vinci will rise from the dead. Ludwig von Beethoven will rise from the dead. Napoleon Bonaparte will rise from the dead. Abraham Lincoln will rise from the dead. Winston Churchill will rise from the dead. Adolf Hitler will rise from the dead. Martin Luther King Jr will rise from the dead. Marilyn Monroe will rise from the dead. John Lennon will rise from the dead. Pope John Paul II will rise from the dead. Kurt Cobain will rise from the dead. George H.W. Bush will rise from the dead. Hugh Hefner will rise from the dead. Billy Graham will rise from the dead. Everyone will be raised, and they will face him. They'll all stand in judgment. They'll all appear before the bar of Christ. First Thessalonians 4:16 says, "For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. and He will command the dead to rise, and they will face Him. The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus, as God, has authority to judge. So you pray to Jesus. You are praying to the one who has authority to judge. You use Jesus' name as a swear word, you're using the name of the one who has authority to judge. You sing Jesus' name in a song. You are singing the name of the one who has authority to judge. You draw a little picture of Jesus. You're drawing a picture of the one who has authority to judge. You tell your children the Christmas story. You're telling them the story of the one who has authority to judge. You put your faith in Jesus. You're believing in the one who has the authority to judge. You reject Jesus. You are rejecting the one who has authority to judge. You die tomorrow rise up from the dead a millennia from now and stand before Jesus Christ you are standing before the one who has authority to judge and what will happen when he calls us out of the tombs and calls us forward verse 29 says those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good will come out to the resurrection of life What beautiful language. What would that be like if I am in Christ to hear his voice? I might have been dead a thousand years. To hear his voice, his cry of command and to come out to the resurrection of life. Those of you who know me know that I sometimes like to visit graveyards. It's not because I'm a morbid guy. I do it because I think it's right for people to be confronted regularly with the sense of gravity and sobriety and finality that a grave presents to you. So I've visited Bunhill Fields a few times because some of my heroes are buried there. Men like John Owen and John Bunyan, Thomas Goodwin and John Rippon and Isaac Watts and women like Susanna Wesley, heroes of mine. Each time I've been there, I've thought the same thing. What will it be like to be right here, right here, and to hear the voice of the Son of God? To see John Owen burst from his grave to the resurrection of life. To see John Bunyan come out to meet the Son of God in resurrection life. To see Susanna Wesley break forth with a song. To the resurrection of life What will that be like And I've been in other graveyards At the graves of people who famously hated Christ Rejected Christ And I think the same thing What will it be like for them To come out to the resurrection of judgment It's a sobering thought We're all going to rise We're all going to meet him what will that day be like for you to come out to meet your Lord your creator your God and your judge we're all going to face him you, I, we're going to face him because Jesus as God has authority to judge now one more thing I'd like to say before we close about this text and it's a statement found in verse 29 we will come out those who have done good for the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, now if you've not been paying attention to me for this sermon, I need you to lock in for the next three minutes, okay? Because what I'm going to say is very important and can be terribly misunderstood. And if it's misunderstood, the ramifications can be deadly for your soul, okay? So lock in here for these few minutes. Verse 29 teaches along with hundreds of other verses in the Bible That we will all be judged, Christian or no, in accord with our works. I'm choosing my language very carefully. We will all be judged in accord with our works. Not on the basis of our works. Look, I'm not just splitting hairs. This is a huge distinction we need to make our works do come into play on the last day the Bible teaches that there is holiness without which no man will see the Lord when you stand before Christ Christian or no he will consult your record and what will he find there will he find that you were one who has done good or one who has done evil he will not be looking my friend for total sinlessness praise God he won't be looking for moral perfection, but he will be looking for some goodness, some holiness. He will be looking for some evidence, however little, that you truly had faith in Christ. That sort of faith that Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 6 works through love. That sort of faith that James tells us in James 2, 8 is shown by works. That sort of faith that the apostle John tells us in John 14 12 does the works of Christ. My friend, what I'm saying is not a contradiction of the great reformation doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. It's perfectly consistent with it. Martin Luther himself said, faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works on the basis of works. But if there be not works, then something is amiss with faith. He's saying part of the very nature of faith is to produce good works. If there are no good works, you don't have the faith. It's like this. Like if, if uh, my wife and I, we get married, we have a wonderful wedding ceremony, we go on our honeymoon, we get back home, and I pull up to the house and I say, okay, are you going to get out and get your stuff? Go inside what are you talking about? I'm going back to my apartment. What? We're married. We're supposed to live together, share a bed together, share a life together. I didn't realize that. That wasn't what I had in mind. I'm, I'm headed back to the apartment. Have a nice life. What's the problem there? That's not a marriage. We may have said we got married, But we're not living out our marriage. The nature of the thing is compromised because I'm not following through with what a marriage looks like. It's similar with faith. Faith that does not produce works is not faith. Look, you're saved on the basis of your faith. But you will be judged in accord with your works. Did that faith blossom into good works? into holiness, into righteousness, however small. So your works are not the root of your salvation, but they are the fruit. And Jesus will say, however, however little is in there was a sign that this was true faith. Did he or she do good? Good works that accord with faith. On the other hand, if you spend your life Under your dying day, doing evil, you will face Christ, your judge, and he will deal with you according to your works, and you will be condemned. Now, that's heavy, and that's a lot to take in. But how kind of Christ to warn you. And not just to warn you, but to stand here with arms spread wide and to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And I urge you, my friend, to go to the Lord Jesus who has life in himself. Believe on him in repentance and faith and attach yourself to him as the source of life and never let go. For he says he will never let you go. In the 1990s, every child, 168th Terrace, would come out around 3 o'clock and play play freeze tag together. And we'd run around for hours and hours and hours and play freeze tag together. And the way the game works is whoever's it, if they touch you, you're frozen. Can't move. Unless someone on your team comes and touches you, then you can run around again. But you're only safe if you get to home base, which was a lamppost outside my house. And you had to put your hand on that base. And even there was a rule you... You could put your hand on the base and then lock arms with someone else, and then they could reach out because they're touching you and you're connected to the source of base and you're safe. No one can touch you and rule you out of the game. You're not vulnerable running around the neighborhood, hiding somewhere. You're on base and no one can touch you. It's just an analogy. But our faith is like that. We must attach ourselves to Christ who is the source of life, we have to have a hand on Him. There is no life apart from him. Otherwise, you're just running around vulnerable for anybody to take you and to poach you. But if your hand is on him, if you have the one who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you're safe forever because his promise is eternal life. May God help us. Let's Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do what only you can do. What only you can do as the Son of God and the Son of Man. All authority has been given to you to give life. For you have life in yourself. So please, give life to all of us here. Fill us with resurrection life, with eternal life, that you promise in your gospel. Cause each one to be attached to Jesus Christ, the Savior, who is very God of very God, and who can do for them what no one else can. Don't allow our fickle hearts to look for life and satisfaction and delight and joy in anything else, but in Jesus Christ, the Son of God come even in these moments and give life we pray for it's in your son's name